everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of Are You Kidding Me? I'm Naomi Schaefer-Riley, a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. And hello, Naomi. This is Ian Rowe, also a senior fellow at AEI. And today we are thrilled to be joined by Alana Horwitz. She's an assistant professor in the Department of Jewish Studies at Tulane. Um, and she has written a terrific book called God, Grades, and Graduation. Um, and we want to talk to her today about some of her research on the effects of religion on kids' educational outcomes. So welcome, Alana. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So I wanted to start, I was, I, I read your book a while ago, I reviewed it in the Wall Street Journal, and I really enjoyed reading it. It's, um, it's taken from this amazing data set that a lot of uh, uh, scholars have used um, that came out of Notre Dame, the National Study of Youth and Religion. Um, so I wonder if you can kind of start by telling us a little bit about the, the data that you were looking at, and kind of what you went into this project wanting to know. Yeah, so the data set is uh, incredibly rich. As you mentioned, it was came out of Notre Dame. It was a study um, launched by Chris Smith, a sociologist. And Chris and his colleagues, what they did was really brilliant. First of all, they followed a nationally representative group of adolescents. They were 13 to 17 uh, years old at the time of the start of the study, which was in 2003. And they followed them over the course of 10 years. So in this nationally representative sample, there were about 3,300 of these adolescents. And what is really unique about this data set is that there's also a large interview component. So there are about 220 of the adolescents from the survey who were interviewed repeatedly also during this 10-year period. And so what we have is both the survey and this interview component that um, helped me really understand the different dimensions of religion and how they play out over the life course. So, no, I was going to, so, so yeah, so tell me, like, you saw the survey, what did you want to know? Yeah. Yeah, so I actually, I started, what I got interested in with the data set is that they had oversampled um, Jewish teenagers, and I had come to Stanford to write my dissertation really about Jews and education, and so I was like, oh, great, there's a Jewish oversample that's so rare, right, Jews are so hard to study in the United States, um, because they're a really small population, but as I started um, diving into the data, I it was 2015 around this time, and the Pew um, Research Center had come out with their religious landscape study. And I read the study, and the leading headline at the time when the study, study was released was that there was a religious decline in America. But when I opened the study, what actually stuck out to me was not the story of religious decline, but was actually how persistent religion still was in America. I had not realized that a good quarter of Americans still organized their life around religion. Um, and that got me thinking to the fact that in my classes at Stanford, um, I take in a lot of sociology classes, education classes. You know, we talk a lot about race and social class and gender and how those factors um, create educational inequality. And I started to wonder if America is still such a religious country, could religion influence how kids do in school? And so even though I had come into the data thinking about American Jews, I really decided to take a big step back um, and ask bigger questions about religion in America, which is how I ended up writing a book about conservative Christians. <laughs> so did you, I mean, the, the popular narrative out there, I think, you know, if you kind of consult um, maybe, you know, let's call them the media elite, um, would be that 
religion would influence educational outcomes in a negative way, that you're you're learning particular things, kind of maybe they're superstitions, maybe they're things that don't seem rational to people, um, that uh, your religious organization is going to kind of work to shelter you from other influences. Um, so, you know, what what did you find about that narrative? Tell us, like, you know, what what the the, you know, 30,000 foot conclusions were. Yeah, so the over overarching conclusions is that um, when you look at students first in the middle and high school years and you look specifically at the outcome of grades, right, it's important to think about what are the measures that I'm using uh, because the story might be different depending on the kinds of measures that we use. So I looked at grades during the middle and high school years, and then I looked to see what happened to kids as they uh, entered college and which colleges they went to and the probability of them actually completing a bachelor's degree. And so the general story is that in the middle and high school years, no matter what socioeconomic group you come from, on average, if you grow up with this intensely religious Christian upbringing, um, you will get better grades, even after controlling for a myriad of factors. Um, the story th that happens in uh, the college years sort of diverges a little bit based on their socioeconomic position. So um, on average, all kids are more likely to um, graduate, get into college and um, uh, graduate with a bachelor's degree. But where kids go sort of changes. Or in the middle upper class, you end up undermatching in the college selection process, meaning you're more likely to uh, go to a less selective school than maybe your grades would have predicted. If you're in the working and middle class, um, that's the group that really sees the biggest academic advantage. And we can talk about why. And kids who are poor, their odds of going to college um, don't go up very much, even if they grow up intensely religious. And we can talk about why that is. So general story is these religious kids end up sort of overperforming in terms of grades and then um, undermatching in the college selection process. In middle and, high school. and why do you and why do you think that is, is it because they they place more value on being closer to their families. Like what, why, why, why that drop off? Um, because undermatching sounds bad, but maybe mm -hmm. it's not too bad. Maybe, maybe, maybe these are, they're making actually good decisions for family cohesion. Yeah. So it depends what sort of perspective you take on how people make college choices. Many academics think about college choice from a very economic sort of perspective, right? You want to maximize your sort of cost benefit, you know, ratio. You want to go to the most selective school you could get into because that is going to sort of maximize your potential earnings. Um, and for these intensely religious kids, it's really not um, an economic decision in the same kind of way. It's very, very much a social decision in that it's influenced very much by their religion just communities by their families. And so what I find, and this is, I see it amongst boys and girls, but especially among girls, is that Christian girls grow up with a self-concept. And we can see this sort of self-concept, the sense of self emerging already by adolescence, where their sense of their future selves is very much rooted in ideas of the family, themselves being mothers, but also staying close to home. Altruism, right? Taking uh, or doing good for others, as well as service to God. Prestigious careers, which is one of the main reasons people go to highly selective schools, is not on the forefront of their mind. They want to go to college, they want to get jobs, but sort of these prestigious professional careers is not very central to them. And so it's better for them socially to stay close to home, 
um, go to whatever school is near them as opposed to sort of going out of state um, far away. Um, they're also reticent to, they're not particularly open to new experiences. And there's a sort of anxiety about what leaving for college means, what they might learn in college. Is college going to brainwash them? Um, that's certainly sort of wow. a narrative that they've heard. Uh, so there are sort of a myriad of, of reasons tied to their sort of sense of self, their openness, and what they think college will do to their religious beliefs that keeps them closer to home and going to less selective schools. Before we get too far down the college road, I wanted to kind of rewind to kind of the younger kids and talk about what are the what are the characteristics that you think religion in helps to instill in young people that also seem to um, help them in their uh, in their you know, elementary school and high school, particularly for, um, you know, working class kids. I just one one statistic that that jumped out from your book, um, you said among the surveys participants, the probability of getting grades of all or mostly A's was about 10 percent higher among the people you call abiders. Those are, you know, the religious folks than among the non-religious folks in the same socioeconomic group. And mm -hmm. you say that's a that's a pretty big number. So, you know, can you talk about that statistic and, and what you think is behind it? Mm -hmm. So a lot of this, Naomi, comes down to the role of conscientiousness and cooperation, the two C's. And so kids who grow up with this religious restraint in these intensely religious homes learn really early on that learn um, following the rules is important, that there's an authority structure, that being kind to others is important. And they learn that from their own religious families. And that's also reinforced when they go to church, because these are the kinds of kids who both have a personal dimension of religiosity, right? They, they really believe that God is watching them. Um, they believe that God has a, a, a role in how their life unfolds. Their uh, religion is really central in their home. And there's also a public dimension to it that they go to religious services on a regular basis. And so co the combination of these sort of home and um, institutional factors creates um, reinforces the idea that conscientiousness and cooperation are really important dispositions. And um, if you have kids, right, think back to when they started kindergarten. So much of what we learn or our kids learn in kindergarten is how to follow the rules. How do you listen to the teacher? How do you sit still during circle time? There's this hidden curriculum of schooling that starts in kindergarten and really like permeates most of schooling that following the rules, routines and regulations, right? These three R's of school is really important. If you are a kid who grew up already knowing how to do that really well, and these Christian kids know how to do this really well, you know, you've, they've sort of like mastered it, right? Kindergarten doesn't seem so foreign. And so they're just able to have this discipline um, that really helps them. And then the idea that God is really watching you um, motivates these religious kids to, to be self-disciplined, right? I had this one kid in the study who said, I think I imagine Jesus sitting next to me and it makes me want to sort of control my body. It makes me want to sit still and sort of do good and uh, look good in the eyes of my teacher. Because a lot of what grades is, right, it's not just about how intelligent you are and how good of a test taker you are. It's about how easy it is for a teacher to sort of manage you. And if you are a teacher of 30 rambunctious uh, elementary school kids or high schoolers, you love kids who are going to just do what you ask. Um, so there's this conscientious cooperative nature to these kids. Um, and for the working class kids in particular, and the lower middle class kids, Naomi, um, like you brought up, there is a dimension of social capital that's really important here. Basically, religion offers non-affluent families 
a source of social capital, sort of a free form of social capital that affluent kids can access elsewhere. If you are a middle upper class kid, you have social capital um, sort of flowing in your life in abundance and you don't need the church to give that to you. But for working in middle class kids, they don't, um, they're for a variety of reasons that we can talk about. They don't have those sort of social ties in um and 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 so religion sort of buffers them against a sense of despair uh, by offering social capital, and that's really what gives them a particular advantage. And um, that, that's really fascinating. I, I wonder how how do you um, disaggregate between the impact of religion per se versus just really engaged parents, right? Mm. So I I just uh, we just sent our daughter to uh, mentor at Vacation Bible School. Um, which we actually think it's, you know, for many of the reasons that you're um, saying is something they were doing, but we also place a high value on education, right? As parents. So how do you, how do you know that it's the religious component of this? That is the thing versus just, you know, active parents. And also, do you see any differences between married parents and single parents? Yeah, Ian, that's such a great question. Let me address the first part of it, because what you're talking about is this um, potentially unobservable confounding factor of the role of families. And this played a really central role in the study, because when I first started using the National Study of Youth and Religion, um, one of my colleagues at Stanford, um, Ben Domingue, said, you know, maybe what you're observing, because I, I had noticed um, that there was this positive relationship and regressions where you see, right, that the more religious you are, the better your grades are. And like, well, what if there are sort of family level factors like what you're mentioning, Ian, like, that um, that are sort of um, uh, confounding this relationship? And really, it's just about the family. And I said, that's such a good point. How would I ever figure that out? Um, because I don't want to go down this whole like study uh, and, and do this all this work if there's really this huge confounding factor. And so he had this great idea um, that you can study siblings within the same family who have different levels of religiosity. And so here in the book, I mentioned this, and there's an, a separate article um, uh, called um, uh, uh, Not a Family Matter in Social Science Research that really delves into this in uh, depth, is that we use the National Study of Adolescent uh, to Adult Health, the Ad Health Study. And this study is really unique. It's a survey study. It's a nationally representative study. It follows thousands thousands and thousands of teenagers, I think 20,000 in the original sample. It's still going. It's been going on since 1994. It has this unique sibling component where the ad health researchers actually surveyed siblings within the same family. Why is that amazing? Because you're able to control for these, um, uh, sort of do these family fixed effects, these sibling fixed effects, and sort of net out the whole role of families and environments in which you grow up in in the neighborhoods, and really just look at the sibling level differences. And so you, there's actually a fair amount of siblings that have different levels of religiosity. And what we found, what we... What we would find is that once you, you know, control for these family level factors, the effect of religiosity would go away. And that actually is not what happened. The effect of religiosity stayed, which tells us that, which basically means that a more religious sibling in the same family will um, still on average get better grades and be more likely to graduate college than the less religious sibling. So that is the evidence that um, helped me make the argument or allowed me to make the argument that this is not just a story about more involved parents. Mm. Got it. Yeah. And then, um, Ian, remind me your second question. Mar married versus single parents. Uh, yes. So family structure um, plays a role because 
right? We know that in fa- in families where there are sort of two adults, there's more social capital, right? There are more people who are available to observe the child um, or supervise them after school, right? There's sort of more su- supervision, more likelihood of having uh, conversations at the family table, right? Families, and the, the more parents you have, the more social capital right. you have. And, and, presumably, um, and presumably more likely religiosity. Um, right, exactly. And that's not because... Um, Right. Going to church is something that uh, is easier for two parent households. It's more welcoming. Right. If you are a single parent, first of all, you are likely working several jobs. You have less time to attend church. But also, right, there's a social norm in religious institutions that there are these like, you know, standard traditional families or what we think of in the United States. And so people who have these traditional like two parent families are more likely to feel welcome in a religious institution. And so, yes, there is certainly a positive association between sort of religiosity and uh, two parent households. Um, But in cases, you know, I sort of I control for all these family structural factors and religion is particularly helpful to kids if they only have one parent because it provides this additional level of oversight. um, Right. Because you go to church you make friends with other kids, you make friends with other parents, you make friends with the ministers, the youth advisors. And so when kids are out on the street, right, uh, there's, a, there's a sort of this intergenerational web of of, uh, of oversight that happens in, and it deters kids uh, from sort of acting in, you know, deviant ways that can kick them off the academic path. Yep. I wanted to kind of pick up on what you were saying about what religiosity does in terms of the despair that kids sometimes feel, particularly older kids. I mean, we're having this kind of national conversation about the youth mental health crisis right now. Um, and, you know, so in addition to the, the cooperation and the ability to follow instructions, it seems like as the kids get older, the religiosity also provides them with kind of a sense of purpose, like what what it is, what are what am I doing in school? Like why am I going to this place every day? And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about some of the interviews you looked at and some of the statistics along those lines, so we can understand better what the effect was, you know, on on older kids in particular. Yeah, I'll start with this one little uh, with this one boy who was a teenager. He was about fifteen years old, and he was feeling really lonely in school. Um, and he says. God is the feather pillow that I fall back on and it gives me hope. And there's this, just like this sense, being a teenager is really hard, right? There's so much sort of social anxiety and social pressure. And um, for kids who really have this like reciprocal relationship with God, where they talk to God and God talks back, right? Um, They really feel like they have this like um, companion in life and it gives them um, a sense of hope, a sense of purpose, as you mentioned, when kids feel like um, God is really involved in their life, they feel like the w- world is less chaotic. They're able to make sense of it. Like they say, oh, there's a purpose behind this. I'm supposed to make the best of this, right? It, it gives them um, a sort of a way out of this feeling of, of complete despair. Uh, so there's definitely this um, emotional sort of social dimension. Um, and it was really interesting, right? I was writing my book at the time, uh, sort of as the opioid crisis was really unfolding in America. That's the despair had just yeah. come out. And it's so interesting because we think of despair or all the, the sort of story of despair starts with men and as adults. And as I was reading the interviews in the NSYR, I realized that I was seeing these, these male adults experiencing despair through the eyes of their kids. So teenage boys growing up in um, sort of, especially the Midwest and more rural parts of America were saying 
things like, and they didn't know the terms, they didn't know about the opioid crisis, but they're like, my dad got in a car accident and a doctor prescribed him fentanyl and he just kept taking it. And now, you know, um, he is addicted. And then there's just so much, there's rampant suicide and alcohol and drug addiction in the stories of these working class boys. And for them, for the ones that are religious, um, they're able to sort of feel like not lose complete hope in the world in the same way um, as for the kids, for the, especially the boys who are not religious. For the boys who are not religious and they're they're sort of seeing suicide so rampant in their communities and amongst their peers and amongst their fathers, um, despair has a very long tail and it follows them and casts such a long shadow on their life. And it makes them academically very unmotivated, right? It's hard to focus in school when your life is falling apart. Um, and religion um, sort of provides a set of guardrails for kids that um, keeps them out of this emotional, social, cognitive, and physical despair. So one one thing, because again, you, you were writing this during the opioid crisis, you know, the other narrative, and Naomi alluded to it, is this whole idea that religiosity is going down, particularly amongst young people, this idea of nuns, right? N-O-N-E-S being the fastest growing category. So how do we, given this compelling data that you've identified, how do we inspire a new awakening so that more young people uh, absorb this? Is this a call to action for parents to start to um, bring religion more into their lives? Like who... How do we how do we get more young people to benefit from what you're putting forth? Yeah, so it's not a call to action. In no way am I trying to make the argument that we need to make this country more religious, that we need to bring religion more into schools. And I'm certainly not someone who would say like, oh, parents, you should make your kids more religious. But I do want us to, as a country, be thinking about what are the social institutions and social supports that we can provide that um, offer kids the same kind of social capital, gives kids a sense of purpose. There are institutions that can provide this outside of religion. It's much harder, right? Religion is this like institution that was really thrives uh, or uh, uh, a sort of is sort of built with this in mind or um, but there's ways probably to create youth groups and other sort of forms of teenage involvement. Um, so it is a call to action in terms of saying kids are experiencing a profound sense of loneliness, right? COVID certainly didn't help with that um, and exacerbated it much more. Um, but it's certainly not in my sort of, um, not my view that we should make the country more religious. Um, I, I don't go so far as to be prescriptive on that front. Should we kind of when we're thinking about education policy, when we're thinking about ways to help particularly uh, impoverished kids, working class kids, should we be more welcoming of the involvement of religious institutions? And do you worry that kind of there is a certain hostility out there in a certain sense, like, you know, that that these institutions are are sort of, you know, almost promoting a level of ignorance among kids. Um, and I was wondering, like, do you think that, you know, as when we're thinking about policy, should we be more welcoming and open to the involvement of religious institutions for helping kids? Yes. And I think it, the story of socioeconomic status plays a big role here, like you said, Naomi, right? Because Kids who are middle, upper class, they have sources of social capital in other domains of their life. So they don't necessarily need religious institutions. Um, but it's, it is the case, uh, that 
kids who are less affluent, right, working class, lower middle class kids, they um, they benefit tremendously from these religious institutions. And as a country, I mean, we should really be thinking about how to improve the sort of social and emotional well-being of people living in poverty and people feeling sort of really experiencing economic precarity. That would have sort of help everybody. Um, but it's very hard for us to to be able to do that, right? We're having a hard time moving um people into more sort of comfortable socioeconomic positions for a variety of reasons. And so um, if we can't do that, then we can look, I think we should be able to look at, to religious institutions to offer the kinds of supports that middle upper class kids can get elsewhere. Yeah. I, I also would say like, it's, it's interesting to think about what religion offers. Right. And I, I talk about this in my book, but um I send my kids to Jewish schools. We uh, go to um, belong to a synagogue. I feel very agnostic about God. Right. And so we're not doing this out of sort of a, a sort of theological belief. But because I sort of grew up seeing evidence of this in my own life and still believe that um, synagogues and Jewish organizations and the Jewish community rallies around people, especially in times of need. Um, that certainly happened to me. And, you know, uh, I want sort of Jewish institutions to be there for my kids if something else sort of uh, 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 happened in our family that was very difficult, right? A kind of crisis moment. Um, that's when I think, you know, uh, religious institutions really show up. But for me personally, right, religion isn't really about the theological aspect. It's about the social. And so the question is, is like, can, you know, um, what does it look like to create institutions that, uh, religious institutions that can also um, serve big social purposes and you don't necessarily need to have a strong theological, you know, commitment to benefit from them? Yeah, it's interesting. I I, I hear your point about, you know, religion, you know, we really want to ensure that kids are in, in impoverished situations because, you know, middle and upper class kids can get these kind of benefits elsewhere. They can sort of access social capital. But I don't, you know, I don't think we should necessarily say religion. And I know this is not what your book is about, but religion should necessarily, religion and economics are, are you know, transferable in that way. And that there are many people in upper upper echelons of our economy who could stand to benefit from having religious restraint. <laughs> yeah, but Ian, actually, let me point out two things to your to this question of like, should this country become more religious? You know, in one of the chapters of my book, I talk about atheists and actually atheists are also thriving academically um, and they do so for very different reasons. And what I lay out is the argument for that in the book is that atheists are very um, intrinsically motivated to learn in a way that the more religious kids are not, right? The very religious kids are extrinsically motivated to please God. And as a function of that, as a result of that, they end up behaving in ways that help them be academically successful. But these atheist kids, and it's not because they don't believe in God, it's because the kinds of kids who were in 2003 willing to go on record to say they didn't believe in God were also the kinds of kids who were really thinking outside the box, right? In 2003, only like 3% of Americans, 3 to 5% of Americans were willing to say that God does not exist. That number has gone up. But um, so it's not like by saying, oh, God doesn't exist, that that's what makes you academically, success academically successful, but being willing to go against the grain and to be nonconformist, right? Those were the teenagers who were saying, oh, I'm reading Nietzsche and Plato, right? They were sort of thinking about things in ways that the average right. teenager does not think about. And religion played no role in their life. And so, 
you know, there's one a difference right. between the, the atheists and the nuns. And that, that's atheists. what we should like. So, right. no, so that's what we should emphasize here. Like the atheists, as you say, were very and still are very like the self-proclaimed atheists are still a very small component of this. And I think, you know, when you especially when you're talking about like sort of the Midwest and kind of rural parts of America where churches used to play a much bigger role and now have kind of fallen away. And a lot of kids are just kind of like. Eh, like unaffiliated, like uninterested, like those are not who you're talking about, the atheists. Right. It's true. Right. And so but one could say, right, to Ian's question of like, why can't why why isn't this a call to action to make, make people more religious? Right. One could say, and my data shows this also that, you know, atheists who have no religion in their life are doing great. Right. They're overrepresented at our most selective institutions. Um the one could say, well, you know, Europe is very secular and they seem to be doing just fine. Um, so there are, you know, it is possible for us to have a society in which religion doesn't play a central role and people can still have really great lives. But it happens to be right that we are at a time right. The United States, this is an important point. Unlike Europe, the United States is not a welfare nation. And as a result, people are very much responsible for their own well-being and when the state is not there to sort of like buffer you from all the things that could go wrong in your lives, the religious institutions come in and can play a central role. So that's why the U.S. context is different from Europe. And it's important to remember that is what the church really provides, right? It is this sort of um, it is this additional institution that looks out for you when the government can't do much. <laughs> or the reverse could be true. <laughs> the government could be also this additional, you know, this AI. The government could also be this additional institution that looks out for you when all other civic and religious organizations have failed you. Anyway, so, <laughs> all right. We are going to stop pressuring you into saying things that you don't believe. <laughs> Thanks, Ian. Um, we really appreciate your joining us today uh, for this episode of Are You Kidding Me? You can get episodes of Are You Kidding Me? on the AEI podcast channel or wherever you get your podcasts. Um, I am Naomi Schaefer-Riley. And I'm Ian Rowe. Ilan, I knew you'd be a great guest. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, thanks, thanks for, for having me. Thanks for coming on, yes. <laughs>